Coming up on your favorite podcast, it's back for another episode of Peak Cinema. Tonight, Ryan, Lauren here. Uh, We're going to chat it up about the favorite from 2018. This is one of Ryan's picks. Now, I must admit, a little artsy, no doubt about that. Very artsy, but I love Emma Stone. I'm a sucker for Emma Stone, so if you put Emma Stone in a film, I'm probably going to want to watch it. So we watched it. Ryan's going to take us through this pod with the help of Lauren. Lauren's, I'm sure, got a lot of opinions. A lot to get to. A lot of things going on. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff to play with. A lot of politics stuff. Some gender stuff. Um, certainly got to get to the interesting queen relationship with all of the different women in the story. Yeah, the queen was amazing, by the way. Olivia Coleman, great character in this movie. We'll talk about it all. So it's the favorite from 2018. Coming up next on Peak Cinema. Yeah, that's right. It's the Tim Anderson podcast. How you doing? I'm Tim. <clears throat> Ple- yeah, coughing. Yeah. Hate when the mics heat up and then something goes right down the throat. That's good radio. That's how you do it, boys and girls. So good to have you here. How you doing? I'm Tim. That's my buddy Rhino over there on the left side of my computer screen. Hello, Rhino. Howdy. Thank God you're wearing sleeves and you're wearing a shirt. I'm very appreciative of all of those things. As Thank though you. I don't wear those things on the You podcast. were going to go sleeveless if you were going to go up and accept the speech trophy the other night. And I, I was just going to... I said that as a joke to get under your skin. But then as soon not, as we got back, serious. as soon as we got back to the school, sweatshirt was off, arms were exposed, tats was, everywhere, hairs down. I was upfront about how hot I was all day. Just so we're clear. I don't get that. It was like 40 degrees in that building. It's just gigantic so cavernous building. Well, you know, not, you know, the judging wasn't the problem for me. The problem wasn't the judging. It was the, the running up and down to rooms, up and downstairs. And, you know, it takes a lot of heat to get all of this moving. Uh, That's fair. That's and fair. Uh, you, you get a little warm when you get in a little workout moving around the school like that. So yeah. I don't mind judging, but, you know, if I could somehow just, you know, snap to the room. I think I'd enjoy it that much more. We want to make sure that from now on, all of our speech tournaments happen within like half of a school, like a half corridor basically is all we have to work with. We don't want to yeah. go anywhere that requires us if, five if I have mile to, walk down, you know, if I have to walk up four flights of stairs from the judge's lounge to my room, I got to tell you, I'm going to feel like I need a guy with a tuba behind me. <laughs> I just figured it would be like a, like a marathon where a guy would be sitting there with a cup of water halfway there. Like, Oh, thanks. Jeez. Thanks. I needed that. Appreciate it. That's what I felt we like, really needed. I felt like Brendan Fraser winning an Oscar. Wow. There's something. And with that, we bring in the lovely and talented resident feminist of the podcast, Lauren Nelson Kane. Low. How are you, dear? I am doing good. Uh, uh, this movie is is really going to test my uh, feminist of the podcast strengths, I think. This um, is, yeah, this is going to be a you, Ryan, affair here this evening. If Ryan doesn't have, listen, Ryan likes to sit down and, and run for about 5% of the pod. If he doesn't carry the weight here, he's got to, it's got to be like uh, uh, Mahomes here tonight. He's got to carry it the entire night to make this pod work. Because uh, if it's up to you and me, Lauren, it's just going to devolve into how much we love Emma Stone and just how much lesbian action was happening in this film. Well, let's let's get this out of the way first. Tim, I know Emma Stone's on your hall pass list. Lauren, 100%. I know Rachel Weisz is on your hall pass list. Rachel Weisz might yes. be. She not, may not make the first cut of the hall pass list, but I think she's almost there like emeritus. Like, I, I think how, she's just there. Absolute, 
how simply dare you? She is. She and her <laughs> eyebrows are just beautiful. She is. Yeah. She well, is Rachel, running, no Rachel Wise on the short list of about three women my wife would leave me for. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's fair. That's that. I think that's very fair. I can't argue with anything you're saying. It's it's pretty spot on. Spot Some on. of us watched The Mummy when we were children, and it just changed our lives. It's hard to believe. She doesn't look, by the way, not a day older. Not a day older. <laughs> that's uh, that's perfect, what was blown away. Why she's is she James Bond, dude? Who is she? Daniel Craig? Yeah. yeah. No. Are they yes. married? You yep. didn't know that? No, yeah, I didn't know shit. Know. I don't think anybody liked Daniel Craig. I barely like him. Wow. <laughs> Why? Just one of the Craig most I like Daniel man. Craig. I just didn't we're like the last even, couple Bond movies. We're not even four minutes in and Tim's over here hating Daniel Craig. I like Daniel Craig. I just didn't like the last couple Bond movies. What do you want from me? Fault, man. That's not all his fault, but he takes some of it. He phoned in Spectre. He phoned well, it in. I, you know what? I would love to have an opinion on this. It's just that I've only cas- seen Casino Royale. And I watched Quantum well, of Solace. It. I watched Quantum of Solace and threw my hands in the air and said, I'm done. Quantum of Solace is an absolute uh, fever dream. I mean, it makes no sense. It's just one that you wake up in the middle of the night with sweats going, like, how did they do this? Like, what happened here? Like, somebody's got to explain to me what's going on. It's it's the old Santa Claus with the M&M's bit. It does exist. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> but we're not talking very- about Quantum of Solace tonight. Uh, no, we are not. We are not. We're, we are talking, talking about-, about the. Go ahead. No, I, you you go ahead, Ryan. You're leading That's, it. This is your film. Sure. Uh, we're talking about the 2018 um, lesbian classic. Uh, <laughs> is that favorite. what we're calling that? Hang on a minute. Are the, we allowed to say that? I mean, the look, lesbian this is, classic that stars no lesbians is created by no lesbians. But it is the and, telling the story of an alleged lesbian. <laughs> no one no one on this podcast is a lesbian. So let's I really be, think it's a lesbian honest, classic. This, this movie is... Uh, kind of everything you want from queer cinema um it, it's good representation i think it, it gives you some high drama without being campy or, or over the top um now i'll be up front i like this movie uh perhaps confusingly so uh this is this is <laughs> no one of i'm my not surprised movies. at all that this is your pick not at all this is not a surprise uh, to me you hate literally everything i nominate um <laughs> You only like what Lauren likes because you sleep with her. Otherwise, hey. you'd hate half of those too. That's not true. No, no, no. He only likes what I like because I have taste and I've been force feeding it to him for the last 15 years. I'd like to That's think I have taste, Lauren. You and I seem to like a lot of the same stuff. You don't hate the stuff I pick. I wasn't a fan of Point Break. I don't know if I tiptoed around that. Well, you well, you weren't a fan per se. So... First of just all, to, that's a disgrace. Just <laughs> to be upfront, just to be upfront about this, um, Tim asked me today. You know, I want to know why you like this movie. Uh, I think because the idea being that it's pretty easy to tell why people, why people in general might like this movie. Yeah. Um, but why I specifically like this movie? Why you had and, to have it in our peak cinema conversation? I'll tell you this. Because I'm a messy bitch, and I enjoy <laughs> drama. Um, I enjoy the tea being spilled. I enjoy gossip. I enjoy uh, the Real Housewives type shows. 
And this movie is all of that in 15th century gowns. Big, uncomfortable uh, dresses that take an hour to get in and out of. You're a big Joe, fan of that, too. Joe Alwyn uh, being just the clueless himbo uh, sounding board for Emma Stone. Um, and and truly, I'm truly just a, this is just a, a brilliant movie for those of us who just like bitchy drama. Uh, a classic in that regard. Cause that's what it really, that's what it really feels like is it feels like they took a, a storyline from a reality TV show and they just made it fancy. They put it in a little top hat. Occasionally with Olivia Coleman screaming at people. Oh, the best, the best. Honestly, the best moments of the film. See, that's why period pieces still work. Because you couldn't put this same film in a modern setting. If you did, they'd be like, oh, this is really trashy. This is a terrible yeah. film. Who would come up with this? But you throw some 1700s clothing on it. You make one character the queen. And Bob's your uncle. We got a film. You, we got you an Oscar. It, you give it the backdrop of the War of Spanish Succession. Yep. And then all of a sudden, it's, a, it's just a dynamite film. It's just proof. It's all about how you dress up the message, not about the message. Also, let's talk about, just for a second, the needle drops that they have in this movie with no <laughs> modern music, uh, right? The ability the ne- just to... The ability the just to... just needle let, drops in the favor. Let, let the harpsichord fly. Uh, <laughs> just the, the bold choice to do that. I will say... Uh, the the lack of mentions of King George the First as her son, uh, I she talks about not having kids. She has a son. Oh, there's so I mean, there's simply no way that this movie is even remotely <laughs> historically accurate. There are there, some historical accuracies. There are some, but it. But do we know? Yeah, I was gonna say, do we know for a fact that uh, Queen Anne um, basically? was attracted to every young female that she saw. I mean, do we know that for a fact? I think that it's pretty heavily rumored that, that, that was something that she was, that she was doing rumored, um, but yeah. I feel like I, you'll, I feel like you'll I read never that. get confirmation of that though. But I mean, okay. How rumored is my question? Because like, I, I do it, wonder it was, if, are we talking like Emily Dickinson rumored? Because I think we all know. Um, you know, she wrote love not, letters to another woman. Those are love letters. Dude. There's, a, that, there's kind of a smoking that, gun there. Not hundred yeah. percent on that. But what I will say is uh, like, I, I know that she, she couldn't have children. Like that was absolutely true. The, the 17 kids, you know, that being either miscarried or stillborn. Absolutely true. Um, funny enough. Did you know Blackbeard's ship is actually named after her? I did not know that. Oh, I didn't know that. His oh. ship was called the Queen Anne's Revenge uh, because she was displaced and then put back on the throne. And everybody got um, gout while they were on it. That was the other thing. See, that's this is actually <laughs> that was we're, getting, we're getting that a little a early in the Tom Kane, We're getting early into the Tom Kane fact of the week here, but we'll start it early. Um, her not being able to have kids and having gout was actually believed to be caused by an autoimmune disease. Uh, they they believe that she had lupus, uh, and that may have contributed to her stroke at the end of her life as well. Um, so Tom Kane fact of the week there, there it is. The, uh, the many health problems of Queen Anne don't screw your cousins folks. Uh, that would be the lesson of the day there. Um, I would just argue that's the lesson 
of of the century. I was going to say, I don't think it goes beyond the day. You can tell Tom Kane that that fact extends. We can extend that fact out to the fact of the month, fact of the year. I wonder if maybe we could get King Charles to listen to this because, you know. He had a cancer diagnosis. Things are tight. You know, things are the the being being a child of cousins, man. Like this is. It seems to be a trend in those circles. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, not saying. Although you could argue the longevity is there. I mean, King Charles is a thousand. Queen Elizabeth lived to be you know, two thousand. So maybe yeah, they got something figured out over there. When, that feels when lucky because uh, Queen Elizabeth's dad died when he was like sixty. Fair. He also smoked every like every minute of every day. God, uh, that sounds fun, doesn't it? Get no. a nice, just get a pack of heaters and just go to town right now. You know, I, I feel like if this were 1970 and Tim were this age, he would just spend every minute oh, of every God, day in yeah, a bar. I mean, just one just heater after another. Smoke. Yeah, it'd be like I'd use my dad's high school diet where it would be like a blizzard, a Big Mac, and a pack of smokes. That's what my dad did every day in high school, hence my dad. I mean, looks like Andy Reid. <laughs> the Al Anderson special. Yeah. That's the Al Anderson fact of the that's week. The right Al, that's the Al Anderson <laughs> fact of the week. Let me go get my 1975 uh, Chevrolet and let me uh, get a get a Blizzard and get a Big Mac and let me uh, have a pack of Marlboros and we're good. Was it or was it not an El Camino? You know, it's a great question. I, I couldn't speak to it with any kind of certainty. I don't have my information or my notes in front of me on my dad's vehicles, but uh, certainly look into that. Um Ryan, where do you want to start with this? Where do you want to start with this film as far as, uh, do you want to, first of all, I know you kind of said why you like it, because you're a messy bitch. You love the tea. You love the drama. I do. But what what brings you to this film, and why did we have to get this on Peak Cinema so quickly? So I was was trying to find something just to kind of break up the run of films that we were kind of on. It's this, because of where I put this in our list, this is just, so different from everything else that we were planning on doing. That's fair. I mean, this is, there is, I don't think there's anything else like this on our, on our list for the rest of the, for the rest of the year that we have planned. Uh, And I wanted to get into it because I think that when we're talking about Oscars movies, uh, you know, next month, when we get back from vacation this week uh, and we talk about things like poor things, uh, I think it's important that we have some familiarity and some touch point with Yorgos Lanthimos and his style. Because it is so different than anything else that we're going to touch on or see, where I think that we talk about other Best Picture nominations. We can kind of talk about Chris Nolan, because we've all seen Chris Nolan movies, right? We can talk about Greta Gerwig, because we've seen Greta Gerwig movies. But we don't really have anything to go off of when we talk about Yorgos Lanthimos. And I think that it's a really interesting, um, understated style that I, I like about his his movies, that I, I think that uh, it, it doesn't... Everything feels like it should be over the top, but nothing feels super over the top. It doesn't feel too much. Um, you get just enough of Rachel Weiss in the pants, right? There's the she, you know, the 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 sort of masculine overtones that she has in the movie, where she kind of plays the man a little bit in this movie, and I and I think that that's an interesting dynamic that they have, and uh, you know, you, you have the uh, the Nicholas Holt kind of playing the. Um, the sort of really frivolous British, um, you know, an aristocracy that I think is, is a really interesting backdrop when you put it up against kind of the, the humble living that, that Emma Stone is doing, despite the fact that she's serving the queen. 
and I think it just makes for a really interesting movie. So I wanted to get this in here as a stylistic sort of touchstone so that when we talk about poor things and the best picture nominees in a, in a, in a month that we have something to go off of. You wanted to get way away from Point Break and Space Jam and uh, all the other films we've come up with. This is actually the second period piece, even though Little Women is definitely is still you know further ahead than this story. This is about as far back as we've ever gone for a film as far as period pieces are concerned. Uh, Lauren, what was your first kind of first thought when watching this film? Kind of your first first thing that stuck out to you? So I, this is a movie that I actually made Ryan go see with me back in 2018 when I was attempting to watch all the Oscar movies back then. Um, And this was hands down one of my favorites of the year, no pun intended. Um, What strikes me about it is how genuinely funny it is. Yeah. I was surprised how much I laughed. I was surprised. Like modern style funny. Like it's, 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 I think the hard part with period pieces and not something we really had to worry about too much with little women because it wasn't so far in the past, but like a problem that I always have watching, like, you know, like Jane Austen, you know, based movies or something like that is that they're just speaking in such a language that it feels like I really have to pay attention to even remotely understand what's going on, let alone relate to in any way. And this movie, yes, they're speaking in in that tone, that language, but it's also just the comedy feels so fresh and it feels so modern. And so very quickly throughout the movie, you kind of forget that that's the kind of movie that you're watching, that you're watching a period piece. It's just so brazenly funny and uh yeah i'm not entirely sure how much of this is historically accurate i didn't do a massive ton of research on that other than uh, yorgos lanthimos saying that some things are accurate and some things are not and that's a quote um thanks yorgos um (laughs) appreciate that thank you for that convo we'll talk later uh but like i i kind of don't care Mm -hmm. i'm just so like I'm so invested, like Ryan's, like I'm so invested in the, in the gossip, in the drama of this and the way these two women are vying for this one woman's attention and for different reasons, for different, for similar, like there's a Venn diagram. They have a few similar reasons, but ultimately they are coming at it from a different place. And I just found uh, that so interesting that this could have easily been like a, um, like the other Boleyn girl style movie. And it's just not, it's just funny. And it's also sad in some, in some ways. And in uh, a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. And I just, uh, like Ryan said, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it before. And having not seen poor things yet, I haven't seen anything like it since. So I think, I know Yorgos Lanthimos, he did The Favorite. He also did The Lobster, which which uh, a lot of people enjoy. I have not seen The Lobster. And that now he's done poor things. I really think he's poised to be a major, major name uh, going forward. I'm so interested uh, to see more of this. It's just so weird. I love it. 
Yeah, you know, it was sort of the thought I had when I saw Little Women on when we did it for Peak Cinema was that was really my first foray into Greta Gerwig stuff. And you just felt like somebody's telling a story with a different lens than what I had seen before. Uh, and I kind of felt that way watching this one too, because going into it, I, I must admit, I wasn't super jazzed uh, because Oscar <laughs> Oscar films, period pieces don't always do it for me. They really don't. Um, not to say that I can't appreciate the art. I can. Um, but I was like, okay, it's, at least it's two hours. So we'll take that. That's not bad. Um, but I was, I was just, and I'm like, and I like M stone and I like, I like all these pieces, right? It had a bunch of pieces I liked, but I still wasn't sure if I was going to like the film or not. And I really found myself laughing. Number one. Yes. Cause I thought it was well-written. The dialogue is snappy. It paces well. Um, there's really good. I mean, there's just the way the scenes clip and move. I really like that. They don't waste a lot of time on exposition. They use the the time to tell the story to get us set up without us going crazy here. I thought that was really terrific. Um, some really great cinematography, some beautiful shots that really tell stories without you really having to use dialogue. I was very impressed with that. And the fact that it handles all of these themes, these pretty serious themes, right? These themes of, uh, you know, I think obviously politics and war, but also uh, illness and, they, and and this idea of, you know, gender and power and love and isolation and sadness and depression, all of these things that kind of play themselves through. Uh, I was very impressed with how he's able to strike this balance of like, we're going to tell jokes and be kind of funny and put this thing in a funny light. But we've also got a, like a lot of really serious themes here that we're going to work with. And it's the way that I used to love about, you know, a good comedy that would make you laugh for half a film and then turn it, give you something serious to work with and some real pathos at the end. Felt like we kind of got that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think and we can we can talk about the ending later. Yeah, <laughs> like I definitely need to get early to, to talk about the ending. 100%. We'll save that. Should we do the plot? Ryan, do you want it? You want me to read the plot or do you got it? You go ahead. All right. Can I have this up? So this is for everybody who hasn't seen the favorite favorite 2018. By the way, if you haven't seen The Favorite, just shut it off now. Go watch the movie. Come back. Listen to the rest of the pod. We don't want to try to bring spoilers. It's one of the reasons why we don't always pick films this new, because we understand, well, it's five years. You've had time. Six years. Figure it out, people. Uh, but still, <laughs> we tend to not go this new just for that reason. We want to try to avoid the spoiler piece. But here's the plot. In early 18th century England, they are at war with the French. Nevertheless, duck racing and pineapple eating are thriving. This is right off the Google um, this is the synopsis. A frail Queen Anne occupies the throne and her close friend, Lady Sarah, governs the country in her stead. While tending to Anne's ill health and the mercurial temper, when a new servant, Abigail, arrives, her charm endears her to Sarah. Sarah takes Abigail under her wing and Abigail sees a chance to return to her arist aristocratic roots. That pretty much sums it up, which creates this sort of uh, love triangle between these three main leads. Well, yeah. And it's, it's also, it's a love triangle, but only for, only from Anne's perspective. Correct. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Abigail, I don't think Abigail has feelings for Anne. Certainly not. I don't think Abigail has feelings for anybody. Um, I think that Abigail was screwed over. And so this entire. Literally and figuratively. Yes. Yes. And so this entire endeavor is is just to gain some semblance of comfort and power 
she marries Joe Allen, who I, for the life of me, I cannot remember his name. Uh, it's my, it's uh, Masham. 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 Um, she, she marries Masham, uh, just so that she can like be a lady, be, be, an be a lady. There like no other reason she couldn't give two shits about this guy. And he doesn't seem to care. The honeymoon and, piece was about his, uh, <laughs> I mean, the night of their wedding. was. A, I mean, if you can just sum up the movie in five seconds, like that's the whole film right there, everybody. That's, that's what's going on. That's like the core of the film to me is that scene. Um, uh, their their wedding night or whatever and she's i'm trying to be as pg as i possibly can she's i mean she's she's pal- doing she's, stuff she's servicing yes she gives and, a um, dry hand job oh ryan thanks Jesus. ryan can we just that. just let's just bite the bullet can we it's just happen in the movie i'm We're all adults be, here well i maybe but Anyways. thanks ryan so she's doing that, and then she's also just, like, discussing, like, thinking out loud how she can still usurp Sarah. And it's like, this she's is... Still, yeah, she's still plotting while she's in the midst of this. Because yeah. <laughs> she's doing... She gets up, he he looks at her, and he's like, this is our wedding night. And she's like, ugh, fine. And she fine. Goes, does this, and she's still talking. <laughs> like, that's the... That's the core of of the movie for me right there. I think you're right because it's not about love or anything like that. They use sex or whatever it is as this sort of just this tool as this weapon uh, to like get what they want. It's a means to an end. It doesn't serve any other purpose other than just, well, you need it. Yes. I got the skills. Here we go. You know, that's what this is all about. I think sex means absolutely nothing to Abigail. It means it means nothing to her. These are all just ways that she can amass power and amass freedom. And um, I, I would say something similar about Sarah, except for that I believe that Sarah actually cares about Anne. Yeah, I think um, so. I think they were actually friends, and you get the vibe that they actually cared about each other. Yes, and I think I, friends. Sure. Sure. Uh, they're, they're roommates. I mean, friends who, yes, who just so happen to be roommates and besties. Yeah. And they ride horses together and yeah. occasionally sleep in the same bed. Yeah. Uh, friends. Things friends. friends do. Who could, who um, could say? I mean. Aunt Anna's <laughs> had this roommate for 25 years. They, they've been great roommates together. <laughs> she tends to the rabbits and all kinds of stuff. And uh, when she has a but, gout spasm, like she's right there. And it's great. It's great. No problems. Really upset when Anne isn't around. Yeah. <laughs> But it's but this is the thing, too, is that I think that that Sarah in her brain, she's like, well, I in in this in this power struggle with Abigail, well, I care about Anne. You don't care about Anne. You're only using her for her proximity to power. And Sarah's doing the same thing. And she's like you said in the plot, she is governing the country um, while Anne battles her like various illnesses and also like at least in the context of this film, Anne's not that great of a leader. And her she husband is-, is like leading the army in this crusade against the French, right? So it's sort yeah. of a, there. there's political aspirations here. There's all kinds of stuff. So that's where it's hard to take, like is Sarah being like really, really honest in her intentions here to run the government properly or to whatever? Or is this a move to get ahead? Or does she think her husband is simply a, 
uh, a tool for power. So she's using it and there's not really love there. I mean, I think that's a, a fair question that I don't know if it totally gets explored in the film, but I don't see like those two as like madly in love or anything like that. No, I don't think so. I do think, but again, there is something to Sarah's character that Abigail doesn't have. Abigail is so brazenly uninterested in romance and sex and love. That stuff is so, it's transactional. And I think Sarah, it's And I think that's because her, she was transactional, right? Her dad yes. lose, basically loses her in a gambling match. And yes. she basically gets... Uh, assaulted by a handful of uh, gentlemen in that situation. I wouldn't call them gentlemen necessarily, but that's basically what happens. She loses. She's basically stripped of her, her any kind of status because she ends up becoming just your, you know, your common, I don't know, common whore, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's horrendous. So it, it, it makes sense why that's how Abigail would feel. And I think that there is, they are the two of them are two sides of the same coin in that Sarah might actually have feelings for these people, her husband and for Anne. She cares about them, but she is also using love and sex and romance as a transaction. 100%. Um, she's just convincing herself that it's because she cares about these people. Really, it's also to amass political power. So, unfortunately, Anne is. Um, completely blind to all of this that's happening around her and just feeding into both of their, uh, the game that both of them are playing. And she's also, I think, lonely. She feels isolated. She doesn't know who she can trust. I think she knows she's being poked and prodded and yanked in a million different directions. She's mm-hmm. got, she's in pain. She's in constant pain. Her health is fading. And probably sees her mortality like staring her in the face because that's sort of what happens in the 1700s where you're like, oh crap, I've been sick for weeks. I'm probably dying soon, you know? And uh, that's kind of how this rolls. And she's, I think, just longs for something. Like those rabbits are like her children and like she just longs for some love and support and consistent family and doesn't have any of it. And she'll cling to whoever gives her even a moment's worth of attention and uh, it, it makes for a great character. First of all, she's wonderful in this movie, Olivia Coleman. But uh, it also speaks to that level of sadness, how we can have comedy in one minute and then turn around in the next minute and have this moment of real sadness and vulnerability. I think it also speaks to the, the loneliness of power. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we kind of see this as a theme in movies about the British monarchy, especially. Uh, or, or, you know, media about the British monarchy, especially where if you watch the crown, right. And you, you see how lonely queen Elizabeth gets, especially early on, right. When anybody who really treats her as human uh, and not just as the queen, right. Or as the princess, right. Those people will become favorites of hers, right. They become close to her because like anybody, they just want to be treated like people. And there, there's a sort of human desire to seek comfort in your own humanity when you're denied that, even if it's to your own advantage. And and I think that this movie explores that a little bit with with um, with Anne, in that you have this this sort of dynamic where she says to um, uh, to Sarah toward the end of the movie, you know, she doesn't want anything from me, referring to to Abigail. 
Of course, Abigail wants something from her. It's naive to think that she doesn't. And Sarah knows that and laughs at it because Sarah sees the reality of the situation. But because Anne is so, you know, blind to it because she just feels better when Abigail's around because it's some, it's someone new. It's, it's unfamiliar. It's fun. She confuses that a little bit in her naivete of, you know, well, this person doesn't want anything from me. And I think that that's an interesting, an interesting thing to, to watch happen throughout this movie, because I don't think that you get a good look at how power affects the, the socialization of a person any, in any other, you know, form of, of media where, where we're discussing power, right? Because the president of the United States in, in movies about their movies and media about the president, they're surrounded by people who are generally normal people, right? They usually come from somewhere where they understand some sort of social normalcy, where they come from a place where they didn't have power their entire lives. Right. But the queen, especially in the 15, in the, in the 1700s, like you have been, you have been catered to and hand, waited on hand and foot your entire life. Anyone who's around you has a desire to have a proximity to power because they're around you. Everybody wants something from you. And to have somebody who, even if they're pretending, says, I don't want anything from you, of course that's going to feel good. And of course she's going to seek that out. But it does breed that naivete that we're talking about. Well, and I think I think that's so much of of Anne's character is how naive she is, and and not just naive, totally out of touch with yeah. reality and with the world she lives. She knows nothing about this war, not because she doesn't understand the concept of the war, but because she doesn't know, like what her people are fighting for, what they're struggling with, and she's. The only information she gets about that is from Sarah, who is obviously using her for her for her own political agenda. So she doesn't even she just has like no real understanding of how the world works, which definitely leads to some comedy in that she is incredibly childlike throughout the movie, um, which is hilarious but also like a little sad for her it's it's why she is able to uh fall prey to um abigail's advances even when you know we can tell that through all of sarah's sarah's stuff she does care about Anne. there's that scene that scene at the end that ryan was just talking about and uh uh Anne says to her something to the effect of like, well, she doesn't lie to me. And Sarah's like, well, I don't lie to you. And she, she's like, well, why do you tell me that I look ugly sometimes? And she goes, because I don't lie. And that's what love is. And she like, doesn't understand that concept that loving, loving someone does not mean telling them the nicest things all the time. But I, I also just so stunted. I also think it's it's when you talk about how she has this this sort of social obliviousness, right? Where she doesn't mm-hmm. have she just doesn't know what's going on. Every time she asks, and she does ask frequently throughout the movie for more information. She wants to understand. She's always told by Sarah, by by um what's Nicholas Holt's character's name? I'm forgetting his name. Uh but but you you're you know who I'm talking about, Nicholas Holt. Yeah. 
Nicholas Holt. Is that Harley? Is that the prime minister? Leader of the opposition. Leader of the opposition. By by the prime minister. You don't need to know that. You don't need to know that. That's our job to know that. You don't need to know that. When when she goes to, to Abigail and says, go and ask people in town and see what they think. Bring, bring people here. She's told that's wrong. That's not how we do this. The the people don't lead, they are led. At at many points in the movie, she is is asking the right questions and she is mm-hmm. seeking answers. And she's not given answers and she's intentionally kept in the dark. And she has no choice but to accept it. Right? Because the you look at and this kind of goes into again the loneliness of power and and kind of historically how monarchs are sometimes the most powerless people in the room, despite the fact that they're the ones making the final decisions. They're the ones that take the blame historically, but they're often misguided by people who have agendas and kept in the dark by people who have information, who are told you don't need to know that when, even if she's asking, she should be told the answer, right? If she wants to know what the people think of a war, the queen has a right to know. And if she's asking that question, she clearly understands that she needs to know this answer to make this decision, but then she makes the decision, okay, fine, I trust this person enough to let them make it for me. And that's where I think that you 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 lose where you get the naivete, but you also lose the excuse of, you know, she doesn't know what's going on. She clearly understands that she needs to know. And I think that's where she loses a little bit of her of her excuse, right? There is culpability there for her in her own situation where she clearly understands that there are things that she needs to know and things that she needs to do. And she doesn't do them from, from like a historical perspective though, Ryan, like, let me ask you, is this why even a political perspective, I guess you could say, is this why like old people, you know, tend to not leave office that it's way easier to push, you know, to maybe manipulate an older person's vote or to move somebody around like, not to say that that's maybe our current president or the former president or a few senators or a few people in Congress right now who are in their 80s, 90s, maybe, you know, there's a few of them there that you would say, you know, you have no reason to really be here. You've made a lot of money. You're old. You could retire and go do something else, anything else, but something keeps you there. And for a long time, I guess I thought it was they stay because they like it too much. But then there's another part of me that says they stay because people around them tell them to stay and it's advantageous for those people around them for them to stay. How far am I off with that? I think two things. First of all, I think if we're talking historically and we're going to, I'm going to bring this back to the monarchy real quick. The monarch doesn't have a choice. True. You are that, that, that moniker that, that power that the throne is foisted upon them from the moment they're born. Correct. Uh, and, and I think that that's an important distinction to make uh, when, when we're talking about comparing that to American political power in, in the monarchy, I think it's clear that Anne didn't want anything to do with being queen, right? Throughout this movie, you can tell that the, the weight of power the privilege of being the monarch is something that she doesn't want anything to do with. Yep. Just some rabbits and a little bit of, right. She would, she would much rather be little girl on girl. She would be in rather be in Sarah's position and let Sarah be queen. 
at multiple points in the movie, I think that that becomes clear that Sarah is the one who's the real queen and she's kind of okay with that. Right. And it, even when like, think about the scene where she's addressing the house of Lords and Harley stands up and, and kind of undercuts her and she ends up fainting hilarious moment. But yep. what happens just before that? She turns to her left and she looks at Sarah and Sarah gives her a nod to go ahead. That's where the power lies. And I think that, you know, when, when we're talking about historic accuracy, the monarchs who know what's happening and make decisions anyway are sometimes the most ineffective monarchs there are. The people who are who fall into this and don't want it and rely on the people around them and know what questions to ask and ultimately get those answers, like I think about King George V during World War II, right? It would have been very easy for him to fumble that war and try to take too much control for himself and dissolve the government when when Chamberlain couldn't get it figured out. But he let things play out and he relied on the people that were, were advising him and Churchill won the war for him, right? That's an example of somebody who, st- who was foisted into leadership, who wasn't expected to be there. He was not supposed to be king. Yeah, that's and right. He, and he ended up taking that role on and being a better king than his predecessor because of it because you relied on the right advice. This is the opposite side of that, right? Where the war is ineffective. You've got too many voices in your ear. You're listening to too many people. You don't trust anybody, but you do kind of trust some people and it ends up giving you hesitancy and flip-flopping decisions. And that's where you you get bad decisions, right? You have to decide something and be a leader at some point, but she's not a leader. She's a child. And part of that is the trauma of losing 17 kids because she's right. It does take a piece out of you every time you lose one. Uh, and, and that's a deep, deep trauma that I don't think is ever fully explored or realized in this movie, but it is referred to quite a bit, Mm. uh, as well as her own illness where she feels powerless in her own body. And I think that there's definitely themes there. Uh, there's also the difference between a queen and a king, right? That isn't necessarily explored in this movie, but it's heavily implied. Um, and when we tie that back to American politics, and I don't, I don't, I'll give the floor back in a minute because I'm talking a lot. But Jesus Christ, the, I know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is a stump speech. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> when we tie that back to American politics, I think that there's so much money in American politics that there's a sunk cost theory that for a lot of the people who invest in politicians, if that's what we're going to call it. Uh, they invest in their career, they push them forward, they sit in their corner, they back them, they help them, uh, they push bills with them. There's a bit of a sunk cost theory for those people where they think, all right, Diane Feinstein's been in office since the 70s, right, in various forms. Yes. We've been with her the whole way. We know Diane. Diane knows us. Diane's staff knows us. We know Diane's kids. We've met them. We've had dinner with them right? They trust us to some extent, right? To a professional extent, which is really all you need. Mm -hmm. And it becomes really transactional. And in American business, the number one thing that you hear is it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. And, And American politics is a business for better or for worse right now. And it's mostly for worse. But if we're going to talk about how people stay in office, it's largely because the people who know them are the people who decide who gets into power. Yeah, and, and we can talk about that being voters. We can talk about that being businesses. But at the end of the day, if you know that person, right, if you know the name, you're more likely to press their button when you're voting for them. If you 
uh, if they're going to run, it's because people around them have said, you've still got it. I don't care that you're 96. You can, you can still roll out there and do this with the best of them. Look at you. You, you look like you could, you could go out there and fight him today, right? They'll forget that conversation in five minutes, but they heard it, you know, and, and made the decision. Yeah. I'm going to sign on this form that says I'm running again because all you need is five minutes. It's true. And, and I think that, that that's the difference between American politics and, and the British crown is it's a choice. Even if it's not a choice in sound mind and body, it's a choice that's being made by people who are getting a lot of money to make that decision. And, and I think that it's wrong. And I think that that's a different podcast. Fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and with that, Ryan seeds his floor back. He seeds the time back. Um, you know what? That was a good answer, though, Ryan. That's kind of what I was. I mean, I, I was. I just thought. I think that's worthy of exploration when it comes to this movie. And I really do believe that, as our guy, the what's his name again, the director. Give me his name because you so better than him. I think that's. I, I gotta think that's a theme he's trying to hit on is the corruption of modern politics and using this classic story to get there. But I, I think that that piece is is a part of it for sure. Hey, let me ask you this, Lauren. I was thinking about this in the car on the way home today. Is Emma Stone on a trajectory to be like the next Meryl Streep? Yes. Is she already? I I would argue that she is already. Let's let's think about a, a hard pivot away from all the stuff we just talked about. By the way, well, because I want um, to get back. Let's talk movies. Let's just talk about the pieces. I think we've explored pivot. the film to a certain extent. I think we've explored the film to a certain extent. I think it's time to talk about the players a little bit. I- <laughs> Chapter two, Emma Stone. Yeah. Um, Emma Stone. We need, yes, we need one I, of those black and white title cards like they have in the movie. They do, exactly. <laughs> we need that. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't have it in front of me how many times Emma Stone has been nominated for Oscars, but I know that she's won already and she's nominated again. And there is a very, very good chance that she'll win. Um, it's pretty much between her and Lily Gladstone right now. And Emma's been walking away with a lot of awards this season. So... I think I think absolutely. I think when you look at her um, her IMDb page, it's just got everything on it's it. It's hard to believe that she's been doing this seventeen years. That she's it's, in her seventeenth year of making films right now. I can't, I'm like struggling to reconcile when I really think about her career. The same person that I saw in the House Bunny. And super bad and easy. Super bad's on our list too. I think we're gonna talk yeah. super bad at some point. And that's like one of the first movies that she ever did, one of the first big movies that she ever did for sure. And um that that was my introduction to Emma Stone. And uh so she did a, a couple of those kinds of movies, and uh she's just she's done everything. She's done that, she's done musicals, she's done superhero movies. She's done period films. She's done rom-coms. She's everywhere. She's, she's every animated movies. She's done. Anim- she's just, um, she's just a chameleon. And I think I truly believe that's because I think she is a phenomenal comedic actress. And I think that comedy is so much harder than drama. It's it's actually so weird to me that I think culturally we we kind of put comedy at a lesser place 
because I think comedy is a lot harder. And I think her comedic chops are so strong that it makes everything she's in uh, uh, stronger because her timing is impeccable. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that too when I was thinking of her career, about just how game she is. By the way, Ryan, eating an ice cream sandwich was shocking. Shocking <laughs> on this podcast. Are you kidding me? For shocking that Ryan would would hoover one inside of five seconds. I mean, just pounded that thing. Anyway, I was thinking it's about this. She is like, here's the term I would use for her. She is game. Like, yeah. I just feel like she is down for any film she's in. You're going to get her very best. There's no phoned in performances. There's no performance where it seems like she doesn't want to be there. That is not her. She is just in when she's in it doesn't matter if it's super bad it doesn't matter if it's freaking zombie land it doesn't matter if it's if it's this film right here the favorite it does not matter here's a couple i just want to give you a handful of movies that she's been in that i don't know if we remember that she was in 2011's i'm sorry uh 2009's ghosts of girlfriends past with matthew mcconaughey there you go the rocker from 2008 with rain wilson she was in 2011's Friends with Benefits with, with uh, Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis. She was in Movie 43. Everyone, but, look, look, everyone was, was in Movie Marmaduke. 43. <laughs> Marmaduke. Oh, right? This is beginning of her career, right? Clearly. But goodness gracious, the Tim's right that the just up for anything kind of like just give me a script and I'll go. Just give me work and I'll be in a movie. Definitely got her to where she is. Because yeah. I would, I would. You flip that like the Catherine Heigels of the world. I would. I don't think Emma Stone is exponentially more talented than Catherine Heigel. I mean, but I we say it now because I think the proof's in the pudding. But I think the her issue, Catherine Heigel had the same trajectory, and she was market corrected by the fact that she wasn't game. She does knocked up. And everybody's like, oh, that was really cool. She did Knocked Up. And she fucking turned around and killed it. She bashed how bad she hated being in it. She hated the film. She didn't like working with Seth Rogen, blah, 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 blah. And then same thing on Grey's Anatomy. She runs herself off that show after a handful of years because it's beneath her. She's not game. And it drives people nuts. I think the comparison to Meryl Streep is apt. Because you, you, you look at Meryl Streep's career. She's game. Right? Yeah, yeah. she's in for everything. Even if it's shitty, like Mamma Mia. Right. And well, Mama Mia's not shitty. Let's let's be careful about that. (laughs) Mama Mia 2 or Into the Woods. I'll give you Into the Woods. Fine. Because I think she's the worst part of Into the Woods. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But the the point is, is that there's there's a sort of artistic humility in Emma Stone and and Meryl Streep where they're not better than anything that they're doing. They're doing it because they like it. They're doing it because they want to do it, because they want to work, because this is what they do. And it doesn't matter what it is. Like Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep was in a TV show last year. If, if you know, for a, a, an actress of her level, of her accolades, going on a TV show 20 years ago would have been seen as a major demotion. But she just does it because she likes it and she thinks it's fun. And I love that about both of them. I think that both of the movies that they do, I want to see because they're in them and I trust their judgment. And And I think Meryl Streep did the same thing that Emma Stone did. Sorry to interrupt you, Lauren, but like Meryl Streep in the early 90s did a very similar thing where she was doing movies like Death Becomes Her and movies like The River Wild. And you were like, man, these films don't feel like the films of her 
caliber and it didn't matter. Like she was in a hundred percent on those films. Like she's throwing 105 in the river wild. That movie should suck. And it doesn't suck because she's really, really good in it. That's how I feel about death becomes her though, as well, which we should totally do at some point because that, that movie is the, the premise of that movie is bananas and it only works because her and, uh, uh, Goldie Hawn, thank you, are just, they're in it. It, it, Movies like that only work when you have uh, actors in it who are uh, genuine. And you're right, Ryan, not above it. Not above the ridiculousness of the thing that you're in. Yeah. Just falling into place. That's why I have an ass full of guys like Daniel Day-Lewis. I really do. Like, look, I get it. You're great. (laughs) Everybody loves you. Everybody kisses your ass. You know, you do one movie every three years, you get an Oscar for it, and everybody loves you. I would argue he's a one-trick pony, and he doesn't do a lot for me. Like, I haven't seen, this is going to be a hot take, but I haven't seen growth in Daniel Day, I don't see range in Daniel Day-Lewis. Hang with me, here's what I'm saying. (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis does one type of movie, one. It's like a period piece, it's artistic, it's plotty, it's slow, there's no comedy in it, there's, there's, it's just the same thing. He's got greasy hair and a shitty mustache, and that's just like what he's got in like every movie he's ever been in. He doesn't do jokes, he doesn't do comedy, I've never seen him do an action movie, I've never seen him do anything outside of this brooding, dramatic character, and that's what he's been. Now listen, it's a hell of a trick. Don't get me wrong. It's a great one-trick pony. Like, it's a guy who hits 500 home runs. That's a great trick. You got it. You're hitting home runs every time you come to the plate. But I would argue, give me a little more Emma Stone. Like, give me a little more Meryl Streep. Uh, in In 100 years, I don't think, I mean, people will think about Daniel Day Lewis maybe the same way they think of Lawrence Olivier or Orson Welles or something like that. But I guarantee you that number will be few and far between. More people will talk about Meryl Streep or Emma Stone. That's just my thought. Because Meryl, Emma, Emma Stone was accessible, was reachable. Like you could, you could watch she her feels, in films. She feels, you know what it is? She feels genuine. 100%. She feels like a, she feels like a person. Yes. Uh, that, that's what makes all of her performances feel, no matter how ridiculous. And it's, from the few things that I've seen from from Poor Things, again, I really wish I had seen that movie before this podcast. But um, from the few things that I have seen from Poor Things, the premise is ridiculous, and the whole thing is very like fa- high fantasy, um, avant garde weirdness. And she, everything that she does, just feels like uh, it feels real. It feels tangible. And I don't disagree. I know Ryan's head's about to pop off. So I'm going to let him have it too, but go ahead. Finish um, your. He loves Lincoln so much. I know. I don't disagree with the point that you're making about Daniel Day Lewis. Like, he's a fantastic actor. Of course. Hell of a trick. Hell of of a one trick. But you're right. He he doesn't do everything. He doesn't. I I think that that, that, to me, really marks um, the talent of someone when they succeed. At kind of a little bit of everything. We're She's a five-tool actress. She can do it yeah. all. Can do it's it all. A short tangent. We Ryan and I were just talking about movie composers the other day and how I am not nearly as big of a John Williams fan as some people on this podcast. 
And that's because I think that everything that John Williams does kind of sounds the same. Can I, can I just can I just say real quick on that point? <laughs> right, you are attacking the core of Ryan right now. You better let him have his second. On on that point specifically, I just want to say that conversation came from me saying that I think he's top five, but he's not my number one. No, All yes, right? no, yes. I I, I, I want to be fair here and to myself. <laughs> say, I am not. I understand where you're coming from. I'm just saying I I don't think you can look at his at the the breadth of what John Williams has done and not say that he's top five because you told me he's not top five. He's not top five. Uh, I I think I think that he just he, he's a fantastic composer and he's an iconic composer. But a in one terms trick of, pony whose trick is very very good. <laughs> oh whose trick is God. very good. In terms of of uh, composers that I think have a lot of range, especially as a movie composer, like that's your bread and butter being able to uh, uh, function in a lot of different genres. And I was talking about how I think that Michael Giacchino, who did the Batman, he did up, he did the Incredibles. He's done. Look him up. It's crazy what he's done. Yep. Star- Harold, he did Harold Star- Faltemeyer did Beverly Hills cop and <laughs> he did the Axel Foley theme. <laughs> it's like, I got him right there. And um, Fletch. But it's like what, what Michael Giacchino does is interesting because it's, it's, uh, it, it makes me think that he is beyond talented because every single score that he makes sounds hyper different from the last one. And it is also the perfect score for whatever he's doing. Mm-hmm. And that's how, I, that's how I feel about, about Emma Stone is that she has a range that Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't have. Now, At Daniel least he Day-Lewis, hasn't proven he has it because he yeah. just wants to do his artistic, um, let me yeah. just do my thing and let me make and my Oscar movie. That's fine. You know, uh, those movies are amazing and he's amazing in them, but he does not, you're right. He does not have a range, um, the same way that, that Emma Stone has a range on her, um, Ryan, I'll I'll, I'll give you the floor to tell me I'm wrong, but go ahead. You can have a minute and then we're going to move on to Rachel Weiss. I want to take this to baseball for a second. Oh my God. This is going to be Emma Stone's five tools and, uh, what's his nose is Barry Bonds. Those those players, they are, you know, we talk about them for years, right? They're great players are the players you look for. Correct. Right? You you draft them first overall, you sign them to the huge contracts, they're remembered forever, they're around for 20 years. Mm-hmm. But the other guys get into the Hall of Fame too. Here's the thing. The unless they're on steroids. The uh fair. <laughs> when we talk like John Williams is a perfect comparison for this, right? Because John Williams is the best at one thing, right? He's not, he's not the best at everything, but he is the best at one thing. And it is not close. Let me put Scorsese in that list too. Put one, put woodwinds and strings in, in, in the hands of, of John Williams. It's the best thing you'll ever hear. He can do the other stuff, right? He can do it well enough to compete. He's not terrible at anything. He's the best at one thing. Right. Daniel Day Lewis can compete. He's not awful at anything he does. We don't know he's awful. He could be the worst comedian ever. We don't know yes, that. But he, we don't know because you'll never see it. But you know what? We can't say he's awful. Right. We can't say he's awful, but he's great at one thing. He's the best at one thing. Right. Mm. Give me that the period piece role with greasy hair. Right. I don't care. Right. Because gangs of New York. There Will Be Blood, Lincoln, are three of the best movies of all time. 
and I love all, I love every part of him in all of those movies, especially There Will Be Blood. I, it is it, uh, up there with Anton Chigurh as far as chilling villain performances, I think. Mm. Just as good. Just as good in, in There Will Be Blood. And and again, those guys get in the Hall of Fame too because he's not he, – he may not bat 1,000. He may not pitch 105 every single inning, but he is going to crank 40 home runs a season. Right, like he he is he is putting the ball out there, and if if you want to mention Martin Scorsese too, I'll take his best against the best of most directors. His best yeah. is very good. I'm not disagreeing with that. He's good. I Absolutely love a one trick pony. Absolutely, that's a what I'm saying. Pony. Like it's not like, uh, I mean, I'll, although I'll give him a little credit for. I think in recent years he's tried to branch out and do some different stuff. Uh, I'll give him that, but by and large, it's you know it's usually a you know a long. We'll talk about- We'll talk about this more when you watch Killers of the, F- Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, because I got yeah. seven like, hours of my life to dedicate to that film. Yeah, yeah. I think that the editing <laughs> is the problem there, but that's that's a choice. And he and loves this shit too. That's the problem. Is like every movie he makes, I got it's got to be three plus hours. I got a long story to tell. It's like what a pretentious asshole. Get your story to two hours and get back to me. Anyway. I don't uh, disagree on the runtime, but also. I really, I'm, I'm gonna push back that Martin Scorsese is a one trick pony, and I say that as like not a Martin Scorsese fan, like Stan or whatever. I do think that he branches out quite a bit. He makes he makes a, a good chunk of his movies are what I would consider dad movies. Outside of those dad movies are really interesting things. Killers of the Flower Moon and Wolf of Wall Street are like wildly different than anything he's ever done before. So I don't I don't I don't want to say that I think he is a one trick pony. I do think Daniel Day Lewis is, but I think Ryan's right. He is the best at that. Fair. No one's better at that than him. That's fair. I can listen to that. Let's talk Rachel Weiss real quick. Is it how do we say it? Weiss? Vice? I think it's Weiss. Weiss. I think it's Let's, Wise actually, but I'm I'm not going to do that. It's pretty funny that we she was one of the early people that we've done on this pod when we did the Mummy. Mummy was like the second film out in our peak cinema movies. And that was from what, 1998? And here we are, 99, and here we are. Um, we have moved into the future some 25 years, and she is beautiful. Holy cow. Uh, she is stunning. You're, you have the floor, Lauren. I know she's your gal. I just adore her. First of all, you're right. She is absolutely stunning. Um, she looks like not one single day has passed yep. since the money, mummy came out. Million dollars, um, 100%. I'll, I'll be lucky to look like Andy Reid when I'm her age, but whatever. Hey, Anyways. that's not a nice thing to say about my dad. <laughs> telling you, put a red well, blotch well, on my dad. He's Andy Reid. <laughs> Wilford Brimley and, and my dad. Yes, my dad <laughs> looks like that. He I looks wish like, I was bullying you. <laughs> he looks like that middle-aged guy who joins the frat from Monsters University. You know what I mean? Don. Don. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, uh, I I think I oh God, I just I, I need her in more stuff. I don't yes. know. I don't know what it is. It's like I obviously she's a successful working actress. But I just like, oh, I need like more stuff with her in it. I just, everything she's in, she totally elevates and feels wildly different than, than anything she's, she's given before. I think she also, every, look, all the women in this movie, their comedic chops are fucking off 
the charts. 100%. It's what makes this movie so good. And Rachel Weiss is one of those one of those people who is just so good <laughs> playing this kind of like brutally honest, incredibly curt uh, uh, person. And she's obviously trying, she's obviously a character who's trying to like exude masculinity um, because she's trying to exude power and strength at this particular time. That's what that means. And I, I love, I love how she plays it so delicately with, her relationship with Anne, mm-hmm. which is like kind of sweet in its own way. I, I, one of the best scenes, one of my favorite scenes, and we can get into this now is. Yeah. Favorite when, scenes. This is perfect. Great transition yeah. by you. This is good radio, Lauren. Oh, thank you. Th- by the way, does my dad not look like Andy Reed? Let me get this back up on the screen real quick. Just for you. <laughs> Does he not look like Andy freaking Reed? I mean, come on. Don't tell me he doesn't. If we put a red poncho on him. Yeah, he's got the mustache and everything, too. Yeah, come on. Yeah. I see it. Yeah, I see it. <laughs> Thank you. Even Anyways. in the Hawaiian shirt. Continue. Favorite scenes. Let's go there. I'd say uh, especially so- in the Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Queen Anne comes out, and she's just wearing just ridiculous, heavy yeah. uh, makeup. It's a great and, scene. Uh, and uh, Sarah just kind of looks at her and is like, no, like what is on your face? And she's like, oh, we we tried to do something different. And she goes, you look like a badger. Go take that off. Just like so, so curt and so uh, devoid of emotion in that moment. Um, just absolutely hilarious to me, that entire scene. And everything that she brings to this part is just like, it's so filled with, I don't know. It's so filled with depth. It's just like a lot of stuff happening. She's funny and she's mean and she's right, but she's wrong and she's manipulative, but she loves her. It's just all of these things that she brings to the part. Yeah, I feel like I know her. That's and here, that's what I love about her. I loved your description too about how she is sort of like she does take the role of the man on in this relationship because she's out riding, she's out shooting guns, you know, she's out mm-hmm. doing all the all that stuff that seems like, you know, she she's about the manliest most feminine woman I've ever seen in my life. Well, and that feels very performative, right? Like because this is this is the 1700s and in reality by the way, Anne is married to a man at <laughs> this time. Um and uh, and she's married to a man, and they are both stuck in this holding pattern with a bunch of male uh, uh, politicians. And so, in order to exude power that she knows that Anne does not exude, she is performing masculinity at, as as high as she possibly can there's, think. There's a, a word that I want to throw out here that I think is a perfect descriptor of what she is, and it's martial. She's she's very militaristic in the way that yes. she acts, walks, and the, even the way she's costumed. Her the angular makeup that they do on her face, her hair is always pulled up very tight, almost making it look short, despite the fact that it's actually fairly long in the movie. Uh, they they do a lot of very martial sort of dress and makeup for her that makes her appear like Lauren saying very masculine. Yeah. They did the um the costume designer and the stylist of the film did model her after like Catherine Hepburn. 
So that's that's the had vibe. There a lot going. of lot of lot of that. A lot of I, I thought yeah. a lot of Audrey Hepburn at times. Like I really did. Yeah. I could see a lot of her too. Very just so so like regal in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Just absolutely fantastic. In a Another lot of favorite, scene. a lot more a lot more queenish than than Anne appears. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Another favorite scene. Um, um, one of my favorites I'll throw. I think Emma Stone's reveal, like the first time we really get a look at her, she's great. Like this is uh, the way she's, you know, she's covered in just crap. She's been knocked out of the the little wagon she was in or the little the carriage. And she's just covered in mud and crap and everything. And yet she's still just sort of like doing her thing, walking through the, you know, walking right into her cousin's uh area where all these royals and, and, and ladies are, and she's just the best, even though she absolutely stinks and she's covered with flies and all this stuff. She just stands in there and is just delivering the info and asking for a job. And, uh, I just loved her confidence in that. Like, yes, totally embarrassed, but also at the same time, just standing in there and being herself. And you're just instantly like, I'm going to like her like five minutes into the film. You're like, I am going to like Emma Stone. I just know that for a fact. And again, super like, what she just allows herself to do on camera, she has no qualms. She's ass naked. She's, mm-hmm. you know, doing all kinds of stuff. Like just in every, she's not afraid. Like she's the most fearless actress I have, I've ever seen. And she just seems super comfortable in her own skin at all times in every scene she's in, including some scenes where, you know, it's like, she's taking some spills like that scene where Harley kind of bumps her down the hill and, uh, <laughs> I mean, she's just, she's willing to be dirty. She's willing to, you know, to, she, she's willing to kind of be vulnerable, but all this stuff. And I think anytime she's willing to, to just be so forward about her past, her experiences, the way she feels about sex, all that stuff. You're just like, God damn, this is one confident woman. Holy smoke. And you can't well, take your eyes off her. Well, and that's so I was reading about uh, so Emma Stone wasn't sure that she wanted to take on this part and she was reading the script and she thought that in in the beginning, she thought that Abigail was just like just like a hapless, helpless little girl who needed help, whatever. And she gets about halfway through the script and she's like, oh, no, she's like a manipulative, messy person. Messy bitch, as Ryan says. And <laughs> Ryan's a mess. That might be the first word of our description of the pod tonight. Ryan's a messy bitch. Ryan's a messy bitch. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Lifelong. Lifelong. Um, but like as she, yeah, she mentions how she wasn't sure that she wanted to take on the part until she got about halfway through the script, and then she basically begged for it. And I think that's that's because Emma Stone doesn't. F- and and I love her for this. She doesn't find it interesting to do something that's just like, oh, she's just like a good person. She just falls on hard times or whatever. Like she'll play a damsel. Like she played yeah. Gwen Stacy. She'll do that. Like I don't but think she has she, any problems, but. But I think that that is what interested her about this part yep. is that. It's time Abigail and place. Is, it's story. It's everything, right? It's all got to fit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more, there's just more there, more to bite into. And even like her relationship with Nicholas Holt is so funny to me. In the I agree. Movie. Holt's funny. He's very funny in this movie. I like him as Harley. He's so unlikable. What a dick, but man, he's, but you, again, another dude that's like playing the part absolutely perfectly. This is, this movie reminded me that I really have to watch the great because he is in, he is in the great and, and 
by all accounts, it's a hilarious show and he's fantastic in it. And I have to imagine he got that part based on this role alone. I love when Nicholas Holt plays just a smarmy asshole. He's just fantastic. Nailed it then. Nailed it. In the menu too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So my, mine is not so much a favorite scene. I have a scene that I'm going to use to illustrate my point, but my, I think my favorite thing about this movie is its use of color Hmm. um, as an, as an illustration tool. Um, the, the way that they, they use the green to frame a lot of what's happening around the palace. And then when you move inside, everything is very dark and dreary Hmm. so that everything around the palace is very full of life. Everything inside the palace feels very dead and dusty and kind of stuffy. Um, but the scene that I'm thinking of is when, um, Sarah and Abigail are shooting kind of toward the, the end of the beginning of the movie. Uh, when when Abigail was requested uh, for the first time by the queen and she shoots the pigeon and the blood splatters on Rachel Weiss's face. And it's sort of like the, 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 I challenge you to a duel, uh, uh, you know, the, the Shakespearean duel with the glove, right? It's very reminiscent of that for me, the, the blood landing on her face like that. And it's so stark on her skin and the white that she's wearing that for mm-hmm. me, it's just such a brilliant, like, use of color to illustrate the battle that they're getting into. Like like you know, Abigail draws first blood, right? And it's, it's really interesting to me that it's illustrated through the color of that, but also the shooting of the pigeons, which is a very, you know, arist- aristocratic sort of 17th century British thing that they're doing. It also yeah, just, it's a good scene. It also just to me feels so much of like that scene symbolizes like the way that, the way that like women feud as opposed to the way that men feud um it's it's all very um goes back to my well, theory that all women secretly hate each other i had this theory for a long time I, that no, deep no, no, down no. dudes like each other dudes deep down can get over stuff in a hurry women on the deep down always i just a little think, something there always something I think the difference is, is that men are conditioned to solve things aggressively and women are conditioned to solve things passively. Neither one of those, I think, are a healthy way to solve things. Might be fair. Um, but that is but that is what I think is being symbolized here is instead of uh, point blank uh, telling Sarah that she hopes to have this kind of power, she hopes to move in this direction or or whatever, whatever, she knows she's not going to get what she wants that way. So she just kind of brazenly usurps her while Anne kind of looks on passively and is like, I'll let you figure this out amongst yourselves. But I'm getting it from both sides and I'm liking it. Yeah. She's getting attention from both and she didn't care about that. So I think I think that that I think the blood splatter scene is very much supposed to feel that way. It's supposed to feel like an indirect start of a battle, but the two of them are never going to mince words and they don't. Which which I think is just this is how this is how women fight. And this this is also something about the movie that I really really like is is the way that everything feels so modern. The people are just people. We've yeah. always been people. We're not different uh, 
uh, now versus then, like the core of how people communicate and operate is pretty much always going to be like this. So I, so I really enjoyed that aspect of the movie. It just really felt like, oh man, this, this is how manipulative women fight each other. (laughs) It's magnificent. There's a lot, I will say there's a line, this is how these women fight each other, but all of the interactions that Emma Stone has with Nicholas Holt are very direct. Those two do not like each other. They want something from each other and they're incredibly direct about it. And, um, after the pomegranate scene where that guy gets pelted with pomegranates naked. That's the um, yeah, very bizarre scene. Very. Lauren <laughs> looks at me weird. in the middle of the scene and says, Tim's going to freaking hate this scene. I yeah. don't know what I was looking. I was kind of one of those where I was like, God can't unring this bell. Uh, we have, uh, <laughs> I'm in it now. I'm in it now the whole way. Now I'm, I can't unsee it. I saw it. You saw it. We all saw it. And now we can't, uh, we can't take it back. <laughs> We're too far down the road now. But she walks up to Nicholas Holt and she basically tells him that like she will do his bidding if he does something for her. And he starts to kind of like wax poetic about what he wants. And she says, "Mm, my thing is what I wish to talk about. And then she continues. That is the funniest fucking line. (laughs) I my thing is what I wish to talk about. That's going to be my email signature going forward. You might as well do that from now on. Yeah, I agree. My thing is what I wish to talk about. I fucking, I loved that. I thought that was so <laughs> hilarious. And also just ama- I love the juxtaposition between their relationship and hers and Sarah's. It's just so wildly different. Right. Any other favorite scenes? Ryan, anybody, any, you got another one? Uh, I think that anytime that Olivia Coleman is shouting at somebody out of the blue, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, is, is just hilarious because she yep. goes off like a bomb. Like you, do, you see it ticking, and then all of a sudden it just explodes. Yeah, she's watching the dancing. She's watching the dancing. She's clearly becoming jealous that Lady Sarah's out dancing with everybody on the floor. I wish to be done. Stop the music. Yeah, get me out of here. Yeah, brilliant. I love it. Brilliant it's stuff. So funny. Um, I, I think that the uh. uh you know, Rachel Weisz's monologue through the door at the end of the movie about how she's not going to come back uh, is brilliant. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's just super well done. I I honestly, I can't think of a scene that I don't like in this movie. I uh, I love the the scene where, where Masham comes in and, uh, you know, he's kind of dressed like a fop. And, uh, uh, you know, Emma Stone asks, are you here to, to seduce me? Or, you know, the other thing that she says. And, and uh yep. You know, the R word. And, and he says, I'm a gentleman. She says, oh, so it's rape then. Yeah. <laughs> just a, a hilarious joke. I mean, just and, and perfectly delivered too, because the, the the way that she just kind of, you know, lays flat. Flop, flops like a so fish when she yeah. says it, which is so funny. Yeah. So perfectly I, delivered. Um, yeah. There's there's a, so many great scenes in this movie. It's hard to pick one. Uh, I, I stick with my use of color as, as my favorite thing about the movie. Uh, I, I gotta, I'm interested in the ending scene. Um, I know we were going to talk about it, so we got we to gotta hit it a little bit here. The movie ends without like a really – without a, like a super clear or clean ending. It's one of those sort of ambiguous endings that makes you ponder, question, or, or whatever. I kind of liked it. Like I kind of liked the ending because there's something very like Anne asserting herself one last time. 
you know, summoning the strength to be the leader one more time, knowing that things are deteriorating quickly. Um, but yet in this moment, like is defensive of her rabbits is defensive of herself and stands up for herself in this, you know, kind of last ditch effort and, and, and asserts her dominance one time on Emma Stone. And it's creates this great visual of like Emma Stone arrived here, uh, rubbing the pain out of the leg of the queen and ends the movie doing the same thing. And I think that's a really cool visual at the same time, it says a lot without saying a lot. There's not a lot of words there. You know, it's her grabbing Emma Stone's hair and her saying to keep rubbing and like that's it. I think that that's, uh, that's the kind of sad part of the film for me is all of this work that Abigail, <laughs> I say work like she's a good person. She's not. Um, all of this work <laughs> like she that Abigail. Like she concrete for six hours. And, yeah. Yeah. Just putting a day's uh, work. Lunch pail. all all this time that she spent trying to kind of regain any semblance of power, any semblance of freedom for herself, no matter how brash she becomes, um, you know, she does it and she does it for herself. And I think in her brain, she's thinking, well, I, I did all of this for my own personal freedom. And at the end of the movie, it's like, well, you're still not free. You're, you're beholden to doing this now if you want to maintain that lifestyle. It never ends. You're never going to be Anne. Yeah. So this is the life that you leave. And that's um, that's something that I think Sarah very much understood. Sarah wasn't trying to be Anne. Sarah governed on her behalf, but she knew that she needed Anne always and that Anne needed her. She understood that symbiotic relationship. Emma Stone doesn't. And I think the end of the movie is a is a wake-up call for her that like she will never truly be an independent person free from, you know, selling herself for for independence. Because now she's doing this forever. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's very, um, it's, it's a little sad and it's a little hard to watch. And it's also probably something that that character needed to understand because she clearly didn't. Yeah. A very powerful way to end the film. And it, it stays on it for like an uncomfortable amount of time. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it's just like, it's there for like two solid minutes where you yeah. have to sit and watch Emma Stone get on, get on her knees and. kind of look up at the queen and the queen's got pain on her face and she's angry, but she's also in a lot of pain and you can tell that it is taking everything she has in that moment. It's, it's really cool. It's a really cool final scene and a cool visual. And I I don't mind when movies end that way because it leaves you open to discussion and interpretation. It doesn't need to be neat and clean all the time. I think that's really the cool part about that one. I really liked it. Yeah. All right. It's very, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's very much not an ending that says that Sarah was right or Abigail was right or either one of them should have ended up with Anne. It's just an ending that says, maybe maybe this is bad for all parties. Fair. <laughs> and it shouldn't have, it probably shouldn't have happened at all. So who wins the movie? Oh, I mean, technically, Olivia Coleman. <laughs> 
Because she wins the Oscar. She wins the Oscar. Super deserved, by the way. Super deserved. Real real quick tangent. Uh, I know that was um, controversial at the time because Glenn Close and Lady Gaga had been trading awards for Best Actress all awards season um, for A Star is Born and Glenn Close was in some movie I've never seen and never will. Um, but Olivia Coleman gave the best performance that year. And it's, it's shocking to me that the Oscar was kind of the only one that she won. She deserved more. Mm. She was, I, I thought her performance in this was magnificent. I know we haven't talked a lot about her cause we've been kind of on the supporting actress train, but she, she is, the, she's the son that the movie revolves around. I agree. Yep. That's a good way to describe it. Really good way to describe it. I agree. Uh, Ryan, do you agree she wins the movie? Uh, I mean, technically speaking, yes. And I think Lauren's right on all points. But I, I will also say that I think that uh, if we're going to, to just pick another name for the sake of being different, I have to go with Emma Stone. Hmm. Um, I, I just think she does such a great job in this movie of, of really playing a, a few different roles within the same role, right? Of uh, she's really different characters depending on the setting that she's in. And I, I think that it's an interesting kind of study in how to create a full person within a character that you're playing uh, with a, you know, with the backstory and the pain that, she, that her family has put her through and the, uh, the trauma of having been, you know, basically sold off by her father. <clears throat> I think that it's, it's a really interesting um, kind of study into how to build a complete character as an actor. I also think it's a big win for the LGBTQ community. Huge win. Because yeah. this is not any stereotypical anything. There's nothing you can point to in this film and say like, ah, they bathed this in a stereotype or there's this other thing. I think they treat these relationships with real dignity and kindness and honesty. Mm -hmm. And they don't do anything that I think moves it down a path where it falls into some traditional thing or some sort of stereotypical role. So I think it's a big win for that. I think it's a big win for brothels. Huge win for brothels uh, because they seem to, <laughs> boy, they really sewed up Lady Sarah after that spill on the horse. And uh, I mean, she looks a little like Frankenstein, but hey, they, off they well, kept her they alive offered and offered her a, her a job. They offered her a job. I mean, that was a, uh, they could have, they didn't have to do that. Really big on the brothel to, to let them do that. Big win for ducks, duck racing. <laughs> Huge win for duck Huge racing. Win for ducks. Huge win Huge for ducks, duck racing. Huge for pomegranates. Huge for pomegranates. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, huge for dad bods getting pomegranates thrown at them. <laughs> big, big win there. Who knew that thing? I had Amaz no idea. Amazing win for wigs. Yep. Wigs win big here. Absolutely. Um, big win for gout awareness. Uh, <laughs> I got to tell you, I, there's so much I didn't know. Uh, it's just uh, it like a little... At the end of the movie, there's like, if you are a loved one. Is suffering gout. from these things. Here's the top 10 foods and drinks, Ryan, that trigger gout. What the hell could she have possibly had? Uh, sugary drinks and sweets. Sure. Maybe. And how many of these are putting oh, us yeah. right in line for the uh, for gout? How many of us are in, us three might be in big trouble for gout. Let me Dude, run it like, through you. What is gout? <laughs> Glad you asked. Here it is. Gout. Characterized as, let's see, gout is caused by a buildup of a substance called uric acid 
in the blood. And if you produce too much uric acid and or your kidneys don't filter enough out, it can build up and cause tiny, sharp crystals to form in and around your joints. These crystals can cause the joint to become inflamed and painful. And it tends to start in your big toe joint. So it starts there and works its way up to like the knees and stuff like that. Do we have like a vaccine against gout? Who the fuck gets a gout? There's days? no vaccine against gout, by the way. So, you got gout, you're in pain. Like that. Yeah. I know a few people who've had it and it freaking sucks. It sounds horrid. I, uh, oh, here, here are the uh, top 10 foods, Ryan. Sugary drinks and sweets. All right, we're in big trouble already. Sure. High fructose corn syrup. Oh, God. We're in big trouble. Huge trouble. Alcohol. Well, I'm good. You're, yeah, you're not bad there. Um, organ meats. Organ meats. I don't eat those. I don't eat those either. That might be what did it for her because they used the whole, like the whole rabbit, the whole deer. Okay. They ate awful back then. So game be, meats and game meats. Oh you know, yeah. That's all they ate. Deers and rabbits. Certain seafood, including herring, scallops, mussels, codfish, tuna, trout, and haddock. And I feel safe those, from gout. All of those things are something that would have been staples of the British aristocratic diet. Red meats, including beef, lamb, pork, and bacon. Also staples in the diet there. And lastly, turkey. Again, a staple. They ate that all the time. But so do we, oh. Ryan. We eat that shit too. Yeah, well, this is my... But how many oh. veggies were they eating? Right. How many how many antioxidants were they were they consciously taking in as far as fruits and vegetables where, you know, they, they were probably eating a lot of root vegetables. There's probably a lot of, you know, they're consuming, you know, wine with every meal. Fair. Um, they're also not as active. They're probably sitting around a lot. Uh, and and gout is often uh, contributed to by obesity uh, and and made worse by inactivity because you're you're not pushing the 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 blood out of your joints as much a sedentary lifestyle can contribute to it. So they were probably also diabetic along with that. And your blood doesn't filter properly when you're diabetic. Yeah. So best foods well, to have when you have gout real quick, skim milk, cherries, coffee, and Lauren's good. Lauren's good. We got it. Coffee. I'm set. You're Thank all set. You. You're never going to have the gout. Uh, this is my, well, Ryan, you said they think that she had lupus too, which is like yep. an autoimmune disease. So like, she would have just been susceptible to a lot of stuff. So like other people might have defenses against this kind of naturally over time. She probably just had no defenses. And then in addition to that, she's eating a ton of red meat and drinking a ton of wine and yada, yada, yada. Yep. It probably just felt like walking on pins. It's like when it's inflamed, it is literally like walking on broken glass or whatever. God, that sounds absolutely no horrible. And now I'm like, yep. hard. Pass. now we're talking Thanks about anyway. it too much. And now my foot feels tingly and yeah, we need to it, stop. Yeah, stop. Okay, moving on. Next thing. Uh, is this film better with Rihanna, Sebastian, Stan, or Carrie Fisher? <laughs> I think if you made Carrie Fisher Queen Anne, I would love this movie even more. Oh, I would. I, I would. I love <laughs> Olivia Coleman. I love Olivia Coleman. But if Carrie, if Carrie Fisher is, is Queen Anne, I'm not sure that it gets worse. No. No. I, I don't want to say that I think the movie would be better with any of them, but I do think that that Olivia Coleman and Sebastian Stan could fit in fairly nicely. <laughs> I think that Rihanna, <laughs> Rihanna, I know you love her. I don't think her acting chops are 
Good you saying she couldn't play Abigail? Movie. You don't think she could get off that off the carriage and, and throw I, some weight the, around with those eyes? Come on now. The star of Battleship? No, I don't think so. <laughs> God, we, we got to get some more love for her. I got to tell you what. It's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> would this film be better as a um, a Hulu series? Like a ten, like an eight to ten episode Hulu series? I think that's an interesting question. I I, I kind of... This is this is a movie that this is a bit like creme brulee for me in that a little bit goes a long way. Right. Yeah. It's it's I think if there was if there was another maybe 15, 20 minutes of this movie, I wouldn't like it nearly as much as I do. Um like if they if they went even if they went to the Queen's death, right? Because this this movie ends really just before her death. Uh because she dies in 1714, I believe it ends in 17, in the beginning of 1714. Uh, and and I think even if you go to her death and give me the 10 minutes just to close that story out, I don't like this movie nearly as much as I do because of where it ends. That's fair. Yeah. I think if you, I think if you uh, make it into a Hulu series, like even if it's like an eight or 10 episode run or something, um, then the ending has got to feel more definitive because you will have followed this feud for so much longer. And the ending being as ambiguous as it is, as it stands, would feel like such a cop-out if it was a television show. I can I can listen to all of that. I can listen to all that. This was actually, Ryan, I was surprised. We cranked an hour and 30 on this film. And I thought we, we covered some ground here. We made some hate. No, I'm, I am shocked. My only question to you, Tim, is did you like this movie? See, I'm not like Ryan. I do <laughs> give I give films a chance. Uh, I actually did. I did like this film. Okay. Uh, I, I thought that, um, again, I like Emma Stone a lot. I just find as a general rule, I just kind of like her. Um, and I, I found myself laughing. These are not my kind of films. I will admit, I'm not a big period piece guy. I'm, I'm not. I'm. I just think sometimes they're a little too stuffy and a little too overwrought for me, and Downton Abbey for me, and I don't. I don't need it, right? Um, but I found myself really enjoying it, and I didn't. It. It never felt. I mean, it was a period piece, but it. The dialogue. You're. We're right about the freshness of it, Lauren. It never felt like a period piece to me as I was watching it. It felt real. It felt new, it felt fresh. And I was in, I was in the whole way, a two hour film that I took in in one sitting and I enjoyed it. That is, so awesome. I liked it. I was confident that you would hate this movie. I was actually very ner- I love this movie so much, um, but I'm pretentious. So, yes. um, I mean, no, I, I didn't mean to say that so fast. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I was uh, not, I was very nervous for Ryan to pick this movie, but I'm glad that you enjoyed it because it is, it is so enjoyable. I for, I forgot. I haven't seen it in so long. I forgot how much I love it. This has got to be a more annual watch on my part. Well, in two weeks, it's going to change drastically because <laughs> we are moving to 19, I think 78 or nine. And we are going to talk about, again, another one of my favorite games, movie star or actor, and we're going Burt Reynolds. We haven't done a lot of Burt Reynolds on this pod. I don't think we've done any. Have we had Burt Reynolds? Have we done any Burt Reynolds films? I don't believe so, no. No. So we are doing Burt Reynolds at the height of his powers. 
and just everything he touches turns to gold. And we are doing Smokey and the Bandit, uh, which I am so fired up to do. It's my pick. I'm confident Ryan's going to hate it. I'm confident Lauren's going to hate it, but it doesn't (laughs) matter to me. We are doing it. I will give it, I will give it a chance. It is. It's an American classic. You could argue it has been rewatched probably more than over the course of its 40 year lifespan. I mean, is, is it in the top five of probably most cable played movies? I would say yes. I would say very few movies have been played that much. I wouldn't know because I feel like Office Space was on every second I was alive for at least 10 years. That's fair. Growing up for me, I felt like it was Smokey and the Bandit. Like any time a TV, it was on, like would Fox would, you know, KS, you know, Channel 9 or Channel 29 would play their movies every Friday night or whatever it was. And I felt like this was in the rotation heavy Uh, and and, uh, they got to run for a long, long time. And it's, a cl- it, it's a classic. It's a. I should have probably seen it by now. I just have not. So. When you get Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, and Jackie Gleason in the same room, I feel like it's got to. We got to watch it. It has to be watched. Has to be watched. So we're gonna take it in. The plot is ban- bananas thin. You think we talked about some complexities here tonight? <laughs> Wait till two weeks from now when we get into the. World of bootlegging Coors beer for cross state lines. Uh, that's going to be something special to watch. So we're going eastbound and down in two weeks when we do Smokey and the Bandit. That's Peak Cinema next time. So my thanks to Lauren. My thanks to Ryan. You can find the archive at timpodcast.podbean.com. You can send me an email at timpodcast, uh, timpodcast1 at yahoo.com. Uh, you can also find us facebook.com slash Tim podcast. You can subscribe anywhere. And I do mean anywhere you get your podcast, Apple podcast, Spotify, iHeart, Pandora, you name it. It's there. Get it done. People like, and subscribe, leave a comment. I would appreciate you. Thank you till next time for Rhino, for Lauren, this is Tim saying, keep your head up and we'll see you. 